0: Gut Feelings, a Rome Foundation Drossman Care podcast series. I'm your host, Johanna Ruddy. On this weekly series, Dr. Drossman and I are frequently joined by guests as we discuss disorders of gut brain interaction, their diagnosis and treatment, and of course, patient provider communication skills, trainings, and tips that are helpful for patients and doctors alike. Thanks for joining us.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Doug Drossman, and as you can see, I'm a Professor Emeritus of Medicine and Psychiatry at University of North Carolina. I'm also President Emeritus and CEO, COO of the Rome Foundation. I want to take this opportunity to give you a presentation on the history of gut-brain interactions, which we used to call functional GI and motility disorders. Uh, What I want to talk to you about is how this all began and where we're going in terms of these disorders. And I feel particularly privileged to do this simply because I've been around long enough to know a lot of the history. So I'm going to take you through the history right now. Uh, The first thing we got to keep in mind is that good bowel function is important. Josh Billings said a good set of bowels is worth more to a man than any quantity of brains. So let's begin by understanding the whole concept of illness and disease. This depends on changing belief systems, or what we call explanatory, or folk models of the time. New models develop, and they're reinforced by scientific evidence, and others are abandoned. So for example, the concepts in the 40s, 50s, and 60s of psychogenesis. Biomedical reductionism and mind-body dualism have been replaced by the biopsychosocial model. And in a similar vein, the term functional GI and motility disorders is being replaced by disorders of gut-brain interaction. And you'll see why. Over the millennia, there has been a shift in understanding illness and disease between holism and dualism. This is in Western uh, civilization. It is not as prevalent in Eastern civilization uh, based on certain Western principles. Holism means unifying the mind and body, that it's an integrated system, and dualism separates the mind and body. Going back to uh, the ancient Greeks, about over 2,000 years ago, uh, Plato and then later Aristotle. Uh, went on. Plato said, the greatest mistake in the treatment of disease is that there are physicians for the body and physicians for the soul, but the two cannot be separated. And medical science went along with that concept, but it was very limited in terms of how patients could be studied because the church forbade, forbade any dissection. Now, as a result of that, we looked at urine and we looked at the external features, but we didn't really understand internal organ function function or disease. Now, in the 1600s, Rene Descartes came along with his hypothesis that the mind and body were separated. This was the concept of dualism. And he said there was the thinking mind, which he called res cogitans, and the machine-like body res extensa. And this took hold uh, at the time. And as a result, uh, the separation allowed for dissection. The reason why the church didn't allow it was because the mind was thought to be part of the body. But now the mind was thought separate, and the spirit was there, separate from the uh, body. So that led to the concept of dualism and dissection could occur because the spirit was elsewhere. Now that continued for the next 300 years, this concept of separation of mind and body. At an IFFGD meeting about 10 years ago and a keynote presentation, I felt that the concept of separation of mind and body was so dominant and pervasive that it's led to profound negative effects on research, patient care, and the patient-physician relationship. And that certainly has had an effect in our understanding of the DGBIs, because what it meant with mind-body dualism is that there was objective, verifiable disease that you could see by x-ray or endoscopy uh, or uh, laboratory studies, which was considered organic. And then there was the patient's perception of ill health, which was considered functional. And over the years, that distinction led to uh, a lot of the, the, the clinical work being more morphologically based. So if you see something by endoscopy, it's real. If you don't, it's considered functional. And the attribution is often psychiatric. This isn't true. Here's a study done by Kurt Kroenke uh, uh, over 20 years ago. 30 years ago, that looked at all the clinical presentations seen uh, in a primary care clinic, abdominal pain being shown here. And these patients were followed. And the yellow shows when an organic disorder was found. And what you can see here is that for most of the illnesses that patients came for, the the finding of an organic or structural abnormality was only about 10%. So while we learn to look for structural bases, for the most part, that's not clinical proc, uh, pro, a clinical process. Now, to make things worse are the attributions that doctors can make when you have illness and when you have disease. Remember, illness is the personal experience of ill health. Disease is the objective evidence. Now, when you see both. You have what we could call rightful suffering, like cancer or AIDS or COPD. You see the disease. Health would be the absence of both. But when you have illness without disease, you have these symptoms, and they're often attributed to being functional and even psychosomatic or psychiatric because of Rene Descartes' uh, research model. Here's a cartoon that demonstrates that Uh, The internist in the white coat is saying the old body checks out. Let's see what Doc Atkins here makes of the old mind, Doc Atkins being the psychiatrist. So if you don't find anything medically, it must be psychiatric. And you can see that the patient is uh, both surprised and not very accepting of this premise, because why would it be assumed that she has a psychiatric diagnosis? The change came In the late 70s, by George Engel, who was an internist and psychoanalyst. He was actually my mentor and has been uh, someone who was the basis for a lot of my current work. And he coined the term the biopsychosocial model. And we'll come back to that uh, through uh, a diagram. But he's saying that mind and body are integrated, and that explains illness and disease. Well, let's move on and talk through history. Of the evolution of knowledge in gastrointestinal physiology. Over a thousand years ago, Moses Maimonides, who is a physician as well as a teacher and philosopher, said man should strive to have his intestines relaxed all the days of his life. So they knew at that time that the intestines do play a role in feeling ill. I think one of the first Physiologic investigations occurred in 1822. Uh, this was William Beaumont, who was an army physician, and there was a soldier named Alexis St. Martin who was shot, and he developed a gastric fistula. And Beaumont was studying this, and he noted that milk coagulated, which led to the understanding of acid secretion, and that digestion included a churning motion. In the beginning of the 20th century, Walter Cannon, Uh, noted that cats, when stressed by a growling dog, were shown by x-ray to have reduced intestinal motility. So this was one of the early examples physiologically of motility being affected by stress. Ivan Pavlov, who of course you know about in terms of conditioned response, he also looked at conditioned response relative to gastric secretion. Uh, You need a cephalic phase uh, for acid secretion. And what he found is if he severed the vagus nerve, this abolished gastric sec- secretion in response to sham feeding. When animals saw food, they would salivate. But if they were had a vagotomy, this ended the acid secretion. Stuart Wolf um, uh, studied a patient named Tom who's shown in the background looking at the role of emotion and stress. Uh, this, uh, Tom actually at age nine burned his esophagus with clam chowder, and surgeons at New York Hospital performed one of the first gastrostomies of the time. Tom fed himself through the gastrostomy for the next 65 years of his life. Wolf noted that in stressful situations, there was paleness and reduced motility of his stomach, similar to Cannon's cats. But when the person got angry or challenged, The mucosa became red, and there was increased secretion and increased motility, similar to the changes of anticipating food. So emotions of stress or fear or anger would lead to different changes. Uh, In the 40s, Hans Salier, who, uh, as you know, um, looked at the effects of stress, he noted that the adrenal enlargement occurred in rats exposed to stress. But he also noted that there were gastric Erosions as part of his concept of the general adaptation syndrome. Tom Almy, another one of my mentors, uh, studied the effects of stress on colonic motility in human subjects. And here's one experiment that didn't wouldn't occur by IRB now. He looked at fourth-year medical students and he did sigmoidoscopy by having them in the knee chest position. And he looked at the contractile state of the bowel. After an emotional stress, where he was looking at the sigmoid colon, and he found, uh, he said to the to the student that it looks like there's a cancer, and he actually uh, took a false biopsy, put a piece of potato in a jar of formalin, and showed it to the student. And he looked at the increase in motility until the hoax was explained, and then the contractile state improved. As I mentioned, George Engel did some very interesting work with with psychologic factors, coining the term biopsychosocial um, model. And this was one of his famous work, it was a a woman named Monica, who was born with a a gastric esophageal fistula, and she was tube fed. And he took videotapes uh, and recordings of her into her 40s, and was able to show the effects of this kind of pattern on her behavior. For example, when she was six years old and played with a doll, she wouldn't snuggle the doll to her chest. She would hold it at a distance. And when she had her own baby, she said she would not hold the child to her to her chest. And when asked why by angle, she said it didn't feel natural. He then went back. To, his, to the early life, and you can see that she was not cuddled, she was fed by a tube. So the derivative of that led to actual change in personality. And then finally, more recently, is Bill Whitehead, who has been a collaborator of mine for decades at our UNC Center, and he promoted the concept of visceral hypersensitivity. And this was a game changer in the field of because it moves us away from motility alone to looking at sensitivity. And this was his study back in 1990 to show that when you did rectal distension in normal people, you had a graded increase in pain reporting. And when IBS had increase in pain reporting that was far significantly greater than the normal at any given level of distension when controlling for motility effects. Uh, As I mentioned, there also was the evidence that people with IBS also had increased motility as well. There was a period of time in the 80s um, where uh, investigators at uh, many institutions were looking at the answer to the symptoms of pain and nausea by looking at motility. This is the discrete cluster contractions that were thought to be related to IBS. Uh, as it compared to um, the normals of the migrating motor complex. However, by the 1990s it was found that these motility patterns did not really correlate with pain and the idea of a, a motility marker for IBS for example or pain symptoms was abandoned. Now what, where we're going now is getting into the 80s and 90s was the emergence of syndromes. we've been talking about symptoms, and then we're talking about physiologic effects. But what about disorders like IBS? And that led to this: the idea of looking at symptom clusters that categorize clinical entities. Maybe the first description of IBS was this one by Powell. Uh, he reported four women with occasional pain in the intestines and derangement of their powers of digestion with flatulence and a sense of suffocation. A Cumming said something very unique to IBS. The bowels are at one time constipated, at another time lax in the same person. How the disease has such two such different symptoms, I do not profess to explain. In the 1960s, Chowdhury and True Love gave a a very valuable paper where he categorized 130 cases of what he called irritable colon, which was irritable bowel. And he was able to characterize their clinical features uh, and and, uh, their outcome. He also noted that in uh, about 25% of the patients, their symptoms began by episodes of dysentery. So here we have now the first report of post-infection IBS uh, in uh, about 60 years ago or more. Moving up to the 1980s, how do we make these diagnoses? They were observational, but how do you make it if they don't you have to do an evaluation? And so the concept was to do a diagnosis by exclusion. They had irritable bowel or irritable colon if the workup was negative. But how far can you go in the workup? It was not cost-effective. There was no limit to how many studies you could do. It increased uncertainty, and it postponed treatment. So there needed to be another way to do this. Ken Klein, who was a gastroenterologist working at our UNC program uh, in the 80s, did a careful review of the literature of clinical trials in IBS and found that not a single IBS treatment trial reported use adequate operational definition of IBS. There were patients in a clinical trial who had pain with no depinal dysfunction, who had diarrhea with no pain, or constipation and diarrhea without pain. How can you identify a drug when you have such a varying set of clinical symptoms. Well, the change occurred in the late 80s. And I want to pay tribute to Aldo Torsoli, who was a GI professor at the University of Rome, who at the time of uh, the the late 80s was the president of the International Congress of Gastroenterology. And he came up with the idea of using working teams. Working teams were getting experts around the world to use what was called the Delphi approach, where the experts by consensus, by a specific method, would come up with answers to questions that are not available in the literature. And one of the questions he posed was, how do you make a diagnosis of IBS? By criteria, by symptom clusters. <laughs> and I was fortunate to be on this committee along with uh, Grant Thompson, uh, Gerhard Donovall, Ken Heaton, and Wolfgang Kruis. And we came out with a document called a working team report. And that was published in Gastroenterology in 1989. This was the first clinical criteria for IBS. Later work by Grant Thompson started to look at patients with IBS and compare them to normals. uh, I'm sorry, and compare them to patients with organic disease. And he looked at certain clusters of symptoms to see how they were significantly differentiated. And if you look at this and you know the Rome criteria, this was the onlaga or the beginning of the criteria by showing that looser stools at the onset of pain, more frequent bowel movements at pain, pain ease by bowel movement, relief by defecation, and distension were factors that distinguished significantly IBS from organic. This would be consistent with IBS with diarrhea. And he also found that if you cluster them, if the number of the criteria, this is the Manning criteria, were three three items compared to one showed higher specificity and higher positive likelihood ratio and a negative uh, uh, likelihood ra- ratio as well. So these criteria were then followed again by Bill Whitehead, who do factor, factor analysis of large Populations, and in doing so, he came up with what was then considered the Rome criteria, showing clustering of these symptoms very similar to Manning's, relieved by defecation, a change with a change in, associated with a change in frequency and consistency. And now you could even look at diarrhea and constipation, and the other set of factors showed that frequency, stool consistency. And symptoms of straining or incomplete evacuation distinguished the constipation from the diarrhea. And he called that a constipation and a diarrhea factor. So as a result, the Manning symptoms made up the IBS factor. And this was confirmed by the uh, factor uh, analysis. The next step came in 1990. This is what I've told you about was IBS when uh, Aldo Torsoli and Enrico Caracciari uh, from Italy, who, who worked with Caracciari, came to me and uh, proposed that we set up a method for classifying uh, the all the functional GI disorders at the time. And that led to a working team report for the identification of subgroups of functional GI disorders. And there were about 27 of them. They were broken down. Into esophageal, gastroeduodenal, bowel, biliary, and anorectal. There was chronic pain, which was considered to be bowel. But then with Rome 4, we separated that out to centrally mediated disorders of pain. And each of these categories might have four to six uh, different diagnoses, like dyspepsia here, IBS, uh, constipation, uh, bloating, and so on. That led to the publication of the Rome 1 book. We didn't call it that at the time because we didn't know things would evolve. But this book was a compilation of a series of working team committees that broke down these different categories into separate publications. So, what happened by the early 90s was an identification of another domain of understanding these functional GI disorders as based on not organ morphology which is pathology, which are these diagnoses seen here by x-ray or endoscopy, and not by motility, which is altered motility by physiologic measures as seen with these disorders, like pseudo-obstruction, gastroparesis, this could all be measured physiologically, but on the patient's illness experience. These patients came to us with symptoms that they experienced, and then we used the clustering of that symptom to create syndromes. And those syndromes are some examples are seen here. And that was the charge to Rome. And every six to 10 years, committees have revised the criteria when needed or um, updated the knowledge in these areas. And you can see, beginning around the early 1990s with the first book, Rome 2 came out six years later, then Rome 3, then Rome 4 10 years later, And now, 10 years later, again, we'll have Rome Five coming out. And this will be associated with journal special publications. So where does that take us? What's going on now? Well, to advance knowledge, we need to talk about the academic and educational societies. Uh, Founded in 1979 was the American Motility Society. And this was begun by a group of investigators, shown here, who um, wanted to form a society that focused on GI motility. Uh, These are are well-respected investigators. Their concern was that research in GI motility was not reaching a point that there was active uh, fora for presentation, so they formed a society uh, a multidisciplinary society leading to the field of neurogastroenterology by fostering excellence in research, education, training, and patient care. The first meeting was in 1980. There were 140 attendees, there were 100 abstracts, and there was a course on motility. And these courses have continued annually. In 2009, they changed the name to the American Neurogastroenterology and Motility Society. The Functional Brain Gut Research Group was founded in 1989. I was the first president, and the board included the people uh, shown here. Uh, these were also the individuals who were involved with the development of the Rome Foundation, also occurring in the 1990s. So this was a membership group where the Rome Foundation was more of an international academic Group. And the the mission was to support, promote, and advance multidisciplinary research in the basic science, clinical, and behavioral aspects of brain gut interaction. So, even at that time, we were recognizing the importance of brain gut interactions and multidisciplinary, meaning behavioral uh, disciplines, along with basic science uh, and also international uh, membership. So, we welcomed the international members. Uh, We developed abstract categories and symposia for the AGA Motility Affinity Group, now the Brain Gut Group. Annual meetings were held at DGW, and we aligned as a membership society with the IFFGD and the Rome Foundation. So we had two groups one focused on motility, one on what we now would call functional GI or DGBI. And in 2010, Uh, The memberships of both organizations made the decision by voting to merge the two societies, and we call that the ANMS now, uh, which is a combination of both societies. And the the mission here is to the study of the mechanisms, diagnosis, and treatments of disorders related to neurogastroenterology, gastrointestinal motility, and altered brain-gut interactions, including peripheral and central enteric neurosciences, as well as the functional and psychosocial aspects that are involved in the development of these disorders. So you see a very nice blending of both societies. In addition to that, was the society founded in 1991 by Nancy Norton, who was a patient and patient advocate, called the International Foundation for Bowel Disorders. And uh, She and her husband, Bill Norton, uh, focused originally on fecal incontinence and bowel problems because she, as a patient, had those difficulties. But they wanted to make a difference to reduce stigma, educate physicians, and be a resource for patients. They then became the International Foundation for Functional GI Disorders in 1996, which continued until three years ago. When they changed the name again to the International Foundation for Gastrointestinal Disorders in 2018 to encompass other non functional GI disorders, such as GERD, motility disorders like gastroparesis, and the like. So they expanded. Uh, they pr- produced the very highlighted professional meetings uh, that we all, many of us in the field, are aware of every two years. They did national surveys, scientific publications. Um, and they also lobbied uh, in Congress for research funding. Their mission was to inform, assist, and support people affected by the GI disorders. Uh, Nancy retired. Uh, Nancy and Bill retired in the last year or two. Cecile Rooker, who was the former executive director of the Royal Foundation, became the executive director of IFFGD in 2017 and then president in 2018. So those are the societies now helping to promote uh, education and research. Where has all this work taken us? Well, this slide, I think, captures the history of the research, the key research was done beginning with the motility and then moving on to the use of visceral hypersensitivity as a research domain, Rome criteria, And then came all these other very important research, including neuroplasticity and neurogenetics, biomarkers, epigenomics. And with that came these research domains that we see now, food and diet, brain-gut interactions, microflora, mucosal immune dysfunction, inflammation, and the like. So the use of the Rome criteria allowed us to identify cohorts for research that would bring us To a more modern level of understanding. One of the big changes for IBS was the use of subtyping for IBS C and IBS D, because without that, many of the drugs we use now couldn't be done, because you needed populations using these criteria to see if the treatments worked for diarrhea or constipation. Another Understanding, as we've talked about, is brain-gut interaction, and this is just a cartoon to show that the brain and the gut are hardwired. There are ganglia in the neuro- that come from the neural crest in the embryo that populate the midgut and hindgut to form the enteric nervous system, and that is connected via the autonomic nervous system. And now, what we're seeing are these chain are these interactions. Uh, with signaling occurring at the gut level, at the mucosal level, which then goes to the brain and affects on the gut, the microbiota bile acids, and food that can interact affecting nervous function. That's shown here with the concept of post-infection IBS, where you can have an infection, and in the face of an infection and stress, you have impaired bacterial recognition, leaky gut, increased intestinal permeability, inefficient downregulation of the inflammatory response, uh, and then you get post-infection IBS. And here's a more elaborate model showing that the brain-to-gut communication is mediated by the autonomic nervous system to affect gut function, which can then get down into the mucosa, the submucosa, to affect neural signaling, and conversely, neural signaling is communicated by the neural uh, pathways, endocrine and inflammatory pathways, and this can lead to visceral hypersensitivity, central hypersensitivity, uh, and all of these syndromes that we've identified. That is why, coming down, coming home now, why we call these disorders of gut-brain interaction based on motility disturbance, hypersensitivity, mucosal immune function, gut microbiota, and CNS processing. This came to bear in 2016 with the publication of Rome 4. Now, where do the psychological features come in? We talk about the biopsychosocial aspects. And of course, this began millennia ago Uh, uh, hundreds of years ago when uh, Thomas Eliot said affects and passions of the mind annoy the body and shorten the life and what we developed was the biopsychosocial model showing how early environmental factors can affect not only psychosocial factors but also physiology leading to this brain good communication so that you can have physiologic disturbance and that will interact with your life stress, psychologic state to affect your symptom presentation and your outcome. Well, for a while, it was thought that all people with IBS are psychiatrically disturbed. Uh, and then others, the physiologists, said, no, none of them are disturbed. But if you had symptoms of pain and bowel dysfunction, you'd be disturbed psychologically as well. So there was some early work by our research group and Bill Whitehead, to, who looked at IBS patients compared to people with IBS who didn't go to the doctor, but who fulfilled wrong criteria compared to normal. And we found that the non-patients were no different than normals, But the ones who went to the doctor had more psychosocial disturbance. And the more severe their symptoms, the more disturbance they had. So we recognized that psychosocial factors influence severity and healthcare seeking so it's an additive factor which is essentially a proof of concept of the biopsychosocial model they affect to different degrees the clinical phenotype of the individual an important area of work is looking at the effect of childhood early childhood adverse experiences physical sexual emotional abuse deprivation, incarceration, substance abuse, and the like. And this is shown to be uh, have been increased in the patients we see. This is a study where we looked at sexual abuse and health status and showed that the more severe the abuse in this population, the more severe the pain. There's almost a dose effect. The more they have other GI symptoms, what we call somatization, more disability, if you have example a rape experience compared to others, even increased risk for surgery and functional disability. So we create this model to look at functional GI disorders based on what's going on in the gut, we call that inferred excitation. And then we have, as symptoms become more severe the brain's inability to control or downregulate the symptoms, which are enabled by psychological distress, and that's disinhibition. And that moves on to the kind of treatments we might do. As we have milder symptoms, we have lifestyle and dietary factors. Then we get into gut medications, probiotics, and then we move into the antidepressants or neuromodulators, behavioral treatments and augmentation treatment. And this is what we're talking about. Is maybe in the last ten years, we're moving away from pharmacologic agents directed at the gut. And when we look at brain-gut psychotherapy, this is uh, this is really championed by the brain-gut, um, uh, um, the psychogastroenterology group of the Rome Foundation. Uh, there's a working team that we're doing now that's under review. Uh, In gastroenterology, where we're looking at brain-gut psychotherapies, where we're trying to target the type of treatment shown on the outside with the type of psychologic comorbidity or comorbidity. And all of this affects GI symptoms, so the time will come where we can be more precisely targeting treatment. Just like for the use of gut-brain neuromodulators for the DGBIs, We talk about the use of tricyclics, uh, SNRIs, SSRIs, and then we can augment uh, for conditions and we can use SNRIs for pain. We can use SSRIs for esophageal disorders. And so the the time is coming when we're getting into a more targeted, almost a biomarker type of approach. And then we have to get to the patient. The patient is caught in this vicious cycle. If they're not adequately treated, they go to the doctor. We want to retrain the doctors and the patients to move away from doing more tests, more treatments, more operations when they're not indicated. And then we want to avoid the frustration, the hypervigilance, the symptom-related anxiety that can occur as a result of poorly informed patients and poorly informed and skilled physicians. So what the Rome Foundation has done is it's created a curriculum. We call this What Do You Hear? which consists of educational videos with progressive self-learning, lectures and workshops at medical centers, symposia and webinars at national meetings at at medical centers, uh, a peer-reviewed publications. Um, This Rome Foundation working team was just accepted on communication skills in gastroenterology. Um, and there's also a paper about its impact on the healthcare system. We're doing train the trainers. We've so far trained about 20 uh, key opinion leaders in uh, neurogastroenterology to become workshop facilitators. We have a visiting preceptorship program, and we're doing research. And evaluation. And this is a paper just accepted for publication uh, that shows the relationship of of the physician patient relationship, what items contribute to patient satisfaction. And then finally, uh, we have a book, uh, a book for patients. This is done by Johanna Ruddy, my co author, and myself. Uh, to talk about disorders of gut-brain interaction for patients. It's also for primary care doctors. Uh, and this uh, publication is now available uh, for you. So what we've done is we've, we've taken you through uh, the history, moving up to the biopsychosocial model, patient-centered care, and brain-gut interactions. Thank you for your attention.
0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of Gut Feelings, a Rome Foundation Drossman Care podcast series. Find more helpful tips, downloadable resources, videos, and more on our website at theromefoundation.org. Look under the resource tab for our patient Q&A videos, Gut Feelings blog, articles, and more. Have you purchased your copy of Gut Feelings, Disorders of Gut-Brain Interaction and the Patient-Provider Relationship book yet? Be sure to find that on the Rome Foundation website and place your order or find us on Amazon as well. We look forward to seeing you next week for another episode of Gut Feelings. This has been your host, Joe